prayer. We're going to go to first, uh, excuse me, Second Thessalonians chapter one today, and uh, the title is "Being Counted Worthy." Father in heaven, we ask for your mercy as we read, and we ask we study your word that you'd enable us to clear our minds of all our pre preconceived notions, and that we would listen to and look at the word for what it actually says, and apply it to our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> and. Uh, we're doing First and Second Thessalonians together, obviously, because they go together. Um, Randy was quite disappointed we weren't jumping into First Corinthians, and so well, we got to finish Second Second Thessalonians first. Uh, but in the opening paragraphs, first five verses, I'm going to read it to you, and then we're going to go back <clears throat> and look at it. It's the same people talking as Paul and Sylvanus, Sylvanus and. Timotheus, which is, Sylvanus is the same name as Silas. Silas is a short form of Sylvanus or Sylvanus. And Timotheus, of course, is Timothy. And the writing, they were the ones, uh, Paul and Silas were the ones that were at Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17, uh, that founded the church there in Acts chapter 17 in Thessalonica. And Paul and Sylvanus and Tim Timothy are writing to the believers there at Thessalonica. So it says, Paul and Sylvanus and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our position in him. <clears throat> Grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now verses 3 to 5 is what the primary uh, emphasis of this sermon is going to be about. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet or fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other abounds, so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you suffer." <clears throat> And we're going to back up and look at these things. Uh, I'm going to warn you in advance that the introduction is long. Uh, you see, we're sometimes fearful that somehow we're not going to measure up. That, well, yeah, I'm, I'm a believer. I trust in Jesus for my salvation. But I'm not good enough. I'm not sincere enough. I'm not consistent enough. I don't walk with Jesus good enough. Okay. So we end up suffering doubts. In spite of the fact that Jesus promised that we're secure in him, we tend to doubt, just like the other, Peter and the other disciples did. Now let's think about Peter for a moment. We, we have a lot of stories about Peter in the, in the New Testament, and one of them in particular that Randy just loves, he's got a t-shirt that says, get out of the boat. Uh, well, Peter believed Jesus enough to get out of the boat on a stormy, dark, windy night on the Sea of Galilee when things were rough. Now, a couple of us here have been commercial fishermen, and we know if you get out of the boat in a storm, you are not getting back on because the boat's going to drift faster than you can swim. And they didn't have life jackets back then, and they didn't have a Coast Guard back then, no helicopters. Peter got out of the boat in the middle of a storm at night because Jesus said so. That's faith. Anybody here do that? Not me either. I've never had that kind of faith. But he got a few steps along, and all of a sudden he doubted, and he sank immediately. And Jesus caught him by the hand, pulled him back up on the surface, and they walked together back to the boat. 
And Jesus' only comment was, why did you doubt? Well, that's a good question. That's a good question. <clears throat> in John chapter 6, verse 29, well, in verse 28, the people asked Jesus, what must we do to work the works of God? What do we do to earn God's favor? Well, Jesus didn't say nothing. He said, this is the work of God that you believe on him whom he hath sent. Period. That's why we would say, well, nothing. You don't do anything. You trust in Jesus. Yeah, that's true. Okay. A few verses later in John six thirty seven, he promised, all that the Father gives me shall come to me, and him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out. So if you're worried about, I'm not good enough, God's going to kick me out, Jesus said, no, it ain't so. He ain't going to lose you. He's never going to lose you. In verse 39, he says, This is the Father's will who sent me, that of all which he has given me, I should lose nothing, but I should raise it up again the last day. He's not going to lose a single one of us. Okay, and how did we get into his family? Well, he said by believing. He says, This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. John 5, 24, which we've read a lot of times here in this church, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he that hears my word and believes on him who sent me has everlasting life, that's present tense, shall not come into condemnation, that's future tense, and has crossed over from death into life. That's my past. My past, present, and future covered in that one promise, and it's all conditional only on believing the gospel, trusting in Jesus' shed blood of the cross. So that leaves us with a choice. Do we believe Jesus' promises, his clear promises, as he stated them, or do we build doubt founded upon our misgivings about verses that we're not sure we understand? Well, I, you know, it says over here. Yeah, I know it says over here. But let's start with the foundation of what Jesus said and his sure promise, and then read very carefully over here to see what it really says, because if it looks like it's contradicting Jesus, then obviously I'm not understanding it. Read carefully. <clears throat> Let's go back to Peter's example. We saw that he asked Jesus for a clear command. He says, if that's really you, command me to come to you walking on the water. Jesus says, come. Okay, there's no misunderstanding there. That was very, very clear. He asked for a clear command. He got one. One word, come. As Randy's t-shirt says, get out of the boat. Peter obeyed. He got out of the boat. <clears throat> now, there was no possibility of misunderstanding. And Peter got out of the boat, and he stepped onto the surface of that violently heaving, stormy Sea of Galilee. Think about this. Peter knew that he couldn't walk on water. He knew that it was physically impossible to walk on water. Some of us can't handle a wet floor. Uh, after we had that baptism last week, my wife stepped on the wet floor downstairs, and down she went. A couple minutes later, she tried to walk again and fell again. She's okay. She's okay. Her arm still hurts because she was hanging onto the banister when she fell and twisted her arm. But, but you can't even walk on a wet floor. What hope do you have of walking on the surface of this deep lake when, it's, when there's a storm going? No, it's totally impossible. He knew that. He knew that before he got out of the boat. So believing Jesus enough to get out of the boat at all was incredible faith. Peter, Peter was a man of real faith. <clears throat> It resulted in his actually walking on the water for a few steps. We weren't told how far. Apparently just enough to get far enough away from the boat that he couldn't have grabbed back on if he wanted. 
So why did he begin to add amendments to the Constitution of his faith? We have amendments to our U.S. Constitution. All of them are important. They're changes that were made after the fact to say, oh, by the way, this needs to be included. Okay, so they're all important to us. But is there a reason why we might want to make amendments to our faith in Jesus? I don't think so. He's absolute. He doesn't need later alterations to fit our circumstances. He's absolute. He's the sovereign. He's God. <clears throat> he's the creator. Hebrews chapter 1 says he's the creator. John chapter 1 says he's the creator. Hebrews chapter 11 says that he's the creator. He's God in the flesh, and that's who Peter was dealing with. So why did Peter begin to add amendments to the constitution of his faith? <clears throat> he knew that walking in water wasn't possible at all. And then he found out that under Jesus' authority, it was possible. And he did it. He walked for a little ways. So why did he suddenly think, well, except when the wind is blowing real hard and there's big waves. Then it's not. It's not? Why would it suddenly become impossible to walk because the wind's blowing and the waves are going up and down when a second ago something that was utterly impossible turned out to be possible under Jesus' authority? It says when he saw the wind and the waves boisterous, he, he took his eyes off Jesus and he sank. <clears throat> Jesus caught him by the hand and walked him back. You see, we tend to start adding amendments to the promises of God. And I've heard people do it. I've heard I can read a promise of their security and salvation. And, and they say, except when, I whoa, where did you get the authority to change what Jesus said? And add an exception when he said there weren't any exceptions. <clears throat> so there's no surprises to God. God's never surprised by my failings. I find it very dis discouraging. It's not surprising. I've had enough failings in my life. I'm not surprised anymore. But I do find it pretty discouraging and disappointing when I'm not walking with God. I'm not doing what he wants me to do. I'm, I'm scared or lonely or mad or tired or whatever. You know, the, we walk away from him so easily. We turn our eyes away from him so easily. But it's never a surprise to God. He knew from eternity past exactly how I would respond or fail to respond to his grace and love, <clears throat> his authority. So Jesus was not surprised by Peter's failure. Peter was surprised and thrilled to find himself walking on water. Whoa, look at me go. Well, maybe that's where the problem was. He got to, whoa, look at me go, and he took his eyes off Jesus. No, Maybe that was part of it, but the biggest thing is it says he saw the wind and the waves boisterous, and he was afraid, and he began to sink. <clears throat> so here's the question. Did either experience, walking on the water or sinking into the water, make Peter more or less worthy to enter the kingdom of God? The answer is no. It didn't have any effect at all. Jesus had already chosen him. He had already walked with Jesus. He had already become Jesus' true disciple. Jesus had already told him, you and the other uh, disciples are going to sit on thrones with me. <clears throat> See, we're not qualified by heaven for heaven by our actions. When, when, when we're talking here back in verse 3, uh, where's the word I want? No, in verse Five, where it says that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, it's not talking about by our actions. 
<clears throat> we're not qualified for heaven by our actions. Abraham believed God in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. It says that Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. Hmm. Well, that's pretty strange connection there. All he did is believe God's promise and God made him, declared him to be righteous. In James chapter 2, verse 18, we find that humans can't see faith without actions. So we, we think there's a contradiction between James chapter 2 and Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4 said Abraham was justified by faith. James 2 said he was justified by works. Well, if you read carefully, see what it actually says. Verse 18 says, a man, not, a, not, a, not God, a man may say, show me your faith without works. I'll show you my faith with my works. That's the only way humans can see faith is in works. That's why Jesus said in, John, in uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 15 and 16, he says, no man lights a candle and shoves it under a basket or pushes it under a bed where nobody can see it. You put it up on a candlestick so it lights the whole house. He says, so let your works, said, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. That's clear back in the beginning of the Gospels. <clears throat> Our works are for the, for the benefit of other people to see. People can't see faith apart from works. God sees it. God saw Abraham's heart. And yes, Abraham was justified before humans later on by his actions. In Lot's case, I look at Lot, and I, if, I, if, if the story in Genesis 19, and actually before that, 13 through 19, was all I could read about Lot, my guess would have been he's probably not a Christian. Not, well, they weren't Christians. Probably wasn't a follower of the God of the Old Testament, of Abraham's God. Why? Because his life was a total mess. I mean, the last thing you see about him is he got both of his daughters pregnant, and he's living in a cave someplace in the mountains. You know, doesn't look like a real good guy. But when I get to Second Peter chapter two, I find out that God says he was a righteous man. What? Well, God says that Abraham was declared righteous on the basis of faith. The difference between Abraham and Lot is that Abraham went and acted on his faith and kept on following God. Lot believed, but then let his life fall apart. And we see other examples of that in the Bible, of people that were true believers, but they let their life just go to pieces. We see David called a man after God's own heart, and yet he turned out to be an adulterer and a murderer. Was that surprising to God? No. On what basis was David declared worthy or righteous? It's on the basis of faith, same as Abraham. That's the only way anybody in the history of the world has ever been saved, is through faith in God's plan of salvation. Abraham believed God. God counted it as righteous, him as righteous. Same with David. <clears throat> you see, from a human perspective, we might be seen as unworthy to call ourselves believers or unqualified to serve God. I've heard lots of people say, well, he's, he's not qualified to serve. Really? Okay, well, if God says he's not qualified, that's one thing. But if you just think he's not qualified because whatever, then that's, that means nothing. I, I spoke last week, I think, or the week before, that you know, a lot of times I don't feel adequate for the job of feeding a flock. But then I think about the, the three or four churches there in the dome language in Papua New Guinea where Jim and Judy are working. Jim and Judy Burdett, they're missionaries that we support. Uh, 
you know, they went there. There was no written form of that language. They created one. There was no scripture at all in their language. They translated the entire New Testament. They taught people to read their own language. And now there are elders presiding over the churches there. There's Bible teachers there. There's literacy teachers. There's evangelists. That It's a thriving community of believers. Well, how'd that happen? They're not qualified. They didn't go to the right seminary. Guess what? They didn't need it. They got the Holy Spirit in them. And they're reading God's word and they're believing it and they're obeying it. That's what qualifies them. So let's go back and look at what it says. <clears throat> By the way, this thing about unqualified people serving God and people that seem unworthy, it's been God's specialty for years to, down through history, to take those that are unqualified, unworthy, unlovely, and using them to his glory. We're going to see about Gideon. We're in Wednesday nights, we're going through Book of Judges right now. And pretty soon, we're going to talk about a man named Gideon. And by his own testimony, he was unworthy and unqualified. He wasn't the right guy. God said, hail thou man of valor. And Gideon says, who are you talking about, man? You got the wrong guy. And Jesus said, no. I want you to go in this thy strength. Have I not sent you? That's what made him strong, is that he was sent by Jesus. Go in this thy strength. That's what makes you worthy. You're sent by Jesus. So in verse 3, <clears throat> Paul expressed his gratitude. He says, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren. Brethren means they were believers. As it is, as it is meet, King James says meet, it means fitting, as appropriate. Because your faith grows exceedingly. And the charity of every one of you all abounds toward one another. The, the word charity is the Old English, the way the King James Bible translators distinguished the agape love from the three or four other Greek words that could be correctly translated love. Phileo is the brotherly love that is love. The storge is a different kind of love. Eros is a different kind of love and so forth. But the one they distinguished by calling it charity was the word agape, which means you're pouring yourself out for somebody else without regard to how it's going to affect you. It's an unconditional love that pours itself out for the benefit of the person receiving the love without regard to how it affects the person doing the loving. And that's why it says, God in this manner loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. That's the agape love. We read about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's called the love chapter because that's what it's talking about all the way through is the agape love. He says your love for one another is abounding. <clears throat> well, faith and love are the two things that God commands us to do as believers. Paul expressed his gratitude that the church of Thessalonica was growing in faith and love. <clears throat> their faith in God was growing and constantly being proved by their actions. So that Paul was boasting of their walk with God to the other churches. That's when he says, I glory about you in these other churches. I'm telling them, well, God, you know, look at that. That church is growing like a bad weed, man. Look at them go. He was proud of them. Not arrogant proud. He was pleased and satisfied with their growth. They were doing what they were supposed to be doing. He knew the persecutions and tribulations they were enduring, and he was pleased and satisfied to have been part of their beginnings. Remember, he only got about three weeks there. Four tops, we're not sure. All we know for sure is he taught there for three Sabbath days. 
So if he'd started on a Sabbath, then he was only there for two weeks plus. Uh, if he started the day after the Sabbath, he was there maybe almost four weeks. But it was only three Sabbath days. So between two weeks and a month. <clears throat> and you notice that it does say that it was the agape love that he was pleased with. They were taking care of one another. They were accepting one another. They were cherishing one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. There weren't any cliques amongst them. There weren't any divisions. But these are the two key things that Jesus requires of believers, faith and love. <clears throat> and then he goes on to say in verse 4 that they were enduring these hardships, these tribulations, the persecutions that they were encountering. But endurance is something we grow into. The King James Bible uses the word patience initially in this passage, but patience and endurance are nouns, and enduring and is a verb. So he said you're patiently enduring. With endurance you're enduring, <clears throat> is what it says. The idea is not patiently waiting, like standing in line without arguing. It, it means that I know that I'm going through hard times. I know that my family is hurting. I know that you know, the government's going to take away everything I own. Remember, these people were living under persecution that we don't even know anything about. And their only reason for being persecuted is they had recently become believers in Jesus. You can read the story. It's in Acts chapter 17. <clears throat> Immature believers might say, well, I just can't understand... I just can't understand why a loving, loving God would permit this to happen to me. That's exactly what unbelievers say. I just don't see how a loving God could allow all the evil in the world. Well, you know, a mature believer looks at it and says, all the evil in the world, including disease, including persecution, including wars and thefts and abuse and everything else that happens, are the long-term results of sin. That's who we are as a, as a people, as, a, as the human race. That's who we are. I, I kind of wish I'd bought it. I didn't. There was a, on a clearance table at Barnes & Noble's years ago, I saw a book called 5,000 Years of War. And uh, I thought, what's this? And I opened it up and looked. And what it was is they, they gave the history of, as far back as I know history goes, of what people used for war and their, their I don't know, tactics or whatever, but their armament and so forth. And like every, you turn a page and be another you know, Stone Age, Bronze Age, Iron Age, whatever, the Romans, the, the Persians, whoever, <clears throat> down through the years for 5,000 years of history. And my impression as I looked through it, I just got more and more depressed feeling like this is all we do. We get better and better at killing each other. Okay, that's who we are as a race. But look at before the flood, Genesis chapter 5. God says that violence and corruption filled the earth. Uh, look at right before Sodom and Gomorrah. We see the, the corruption that had hit there. We look at what God said was going on in the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites and all the other Ite brothers there. <clears throat> As you look in Genesis and, and in Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy as they're talking about these people that God took out of the land and replaced them with Israel, the evil in their lives. That's who we are as a race. You look at Romans chapter 1, and he starts and shows the decline from knowing God to rejecting God and becoming idolatrous, and then 
letting go of all morals and, and the resulting chaos in the world. He chronicles the whole thing. Romans chapter 1, read it. Starting in verse 18 all the way through the end of the chapter. <clears throat> We're not going there today. A mature believer recognizes that the world is chock full of evil and danger and tragedy and that all of it is a long-term result of sin. And he or, sure, he or she endures all of it as being that. We know that this is what's happened in the world. You know, my mom was a really a godly woman and she died of a gory, ugly disease called multiple myeloma. And I couldn't understand why God would allow that. Well, tell you what, he allowed her to glorify him through her life right until the day she died. There was a crowd of people at her funeral and people came up to me after the funeral that I didn't even know and said, I want my funeral to be like that. Why? Because of the testimony of her life. So Jesus saved us, past tense, from the eternal penalty of sin by paying the price at the cross. His blood was the first and final, only full payment for the sins of the entire human race. The day we trusted in him as our, him as our Savior, then that check was, we endorsed it by faith, if you want to put it that way, the check that he wrote in his own blood, eternal life, paid to the, to the order of whomsoever, whosoever comes, whosoever will, that whosoever believeth in him, you endorse it by faith. At that day, that salvation was permanent. You were saved, past tense, from the eternal penalty of sin. You're not going to be judged. <clears throat> That's your position. You're in Christ. Because you're in him, you're no longer condemned. He saves us, present tense, from the current power of sin in our lives as we walk with him. That's conditional. If I don't walk with him, then sin has power in my life. That's all there is to it. When Peter took his eyes off Jesus, he immediately sank. If you take your eyes off of Jesus, you're no longer walking with him, then yes, sin has power in your life. God tells us that. He also tells us in Romans 6, you don't have to sin. You do not have to be a slave to sin ever again. Doesn't mean you won't be, because we choose to, don't we? Make your head go this way. Yes, we do. Okay? The fact is, we choose to sin. It's a conditional truth. As I walk with him, he can guide me and protect me from the traps laid by the enemy. <clears throat> and eventually, future tense, he will deliver us from the presence of sin eternally. That's also a positional truth. Why do I say that? Because the thief on the cross who is being executed as the consequences of his own sin is just as free from the presence of sin today as we could ever hope to be in, in our future, regardless of how I live today. There's some day, because I'm part of Jesus' family, because I've been received by him as a, as a repentant sinner, because I've trusted in his blood at the cross, as payment for my sins, I become his child, and I eventually will be with him, even if I don't live right today. It doesn't give me license to sin. It just gives me assurance that all my stumbling and falling is not going to torpedo God's ark of salvation in Christ, which is a good thing, because I do a lot of stumbling and falling. <clears throat> the general consequences of sin, which fill this broken sin wrecked world 
around us usually just have to be endured. I can't undo the sin in the Garden of Eden that plunged the whole world into darkness. I can't undo that. There's going to be wars. There's going to be diseases. There's going to be criminal behavior. There's going to be betrayals. I, I can only endure those. I can't avoid them. They're part of what this world has got in it. There's, there's uncurable diseases in this world today that believers get them too. And it's not a punishment from God. It's just something that to be endured. Yes, by the way, I did pray for healing for my mom, and I was made aware that nobody ever has been healed of multiple myeloma. Okay. Eventually, God got my attention and says, you can either kick and scream and cry about it until she dies, or you can cut loose your own emotions and spend your time making her life a blessing in this last time that you got. Either way, she's coming home. So I quit my crying, and Ann and I cared, mostly Ann cared for her until she died. She died in our home. We're both there. <clears throat> in the nations where there's persecutions, for anybody who's a believer, there's some countries where it's literally illegal to be a believer in Jesus, uh, then persecution awaits anybody who places their trust in Christ. They endure that persecution knowing that they're doing what God wants them to do. They endure the persecution by faith. Mom endured her disease by faith. Anne's enduring the Parkinson's disease that she has by faith. Those of us that love those people endure the loss of our loved ones by faith. We endure by faith. <clears throat> then in verse 5 he says something strange. He says it's a token of the righteous judgment of God. Now, in John 16, 30, 33, Jesus said, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me, in me, you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Okay, that sounds nice. What do I do with that? <clears throat> Those who are doing the persecuting do face the judgment of God. Now, some of them it's not going to be in this life. Some of them it is in this life. Some of them God brings those chickens home to roost while they're still around to see and, and know exactly why they're getting what they got. I was just reading some stuff yesterday on the history after World War II of what they did with all the war criminals, both out of Japan and Germany and other places. Uh, some of them faced some pretty rough stuff. But the coming judgment, first place, Jesus said, all those that have failed to believe in him, regardless of what they're doing, whether it's good or bad. In John chapter 3, verse 18, he says, He that believeth in him, regarding the Son, that in God's only begotten Son, he says, He that believeth in him is not condemned. He that believeth not is condemned already, not because of his sins, not because of what country he came from or what family he was born to, because he has not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. That's the judgment. And he goes on to say in verse 19, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. As a, as a human race, we typically choose the darkness. That's what we want. <clears throat> I've only been in a bar a couple times in my life. One of them because I was working for the sheriff's office and I was serving papers there. One of them because I'd run out of water and I needed water for a radiator. And both times I was impressed with how dark it is in places like that. 
Why do they want to darken there? Because they don't want people to see what they're doing. They don't want people to see that they're even there. And the worse the bar is, the darker it'll be in there. The one I walked in for water, I couldn't see anything. I thought there were no lights. And I heard a voice out of the darkness says, cover charge, mister. And I held up this Prestone jug that I had, an empty uh, antifreeze jug, and it said, I need water for my radiators. Oh, well, the bathroom's in the back. Well, by the time my eyes got adjusted, I realized why that bar was so dark, and I wanted out. It's the only time I've been in a place like that. So what about this judgment? There is judgment coming beyond the judgment that already, that unbelievers already face because they're unbelievers. Because I was on God's death row until I was 18. Why? Because I was a monster? No, because I wasn't a believer. Because I was rejecting God's grace through Christ. I was already on his death row. And if Jesus hadn't stepped in and died in my place, I'd still be headed for, for hell. But the day I trust, trusted in him as my Savior, my sentence was passed in him. But the coming judgment, including the tribulation, about which Paul told in First, excuse me, in First Thessalonians chapter five, where he talked about the coming tribulation, <clears throat> that's still coming. It'll be a worldwide judgment of sin on all nations and on Israel, and it's fulfilling the prophecies in Daniel chapter nine. You can read about that. Daniel chapter nine, verses twenty-three through twenty-seven, tells you what's coming there. <clears throat> The judgment of our sins and the whole world was actually poured out on Jesus at the cross. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says he's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. If a person rejects that payment, then they, they re go ahead and reap the reward of God's judgment. <clears throat> at the end of the tribulation, there's a different judgment. Jesus shows up. In Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 31, reading through the end of the chapter, it says that he's going to sit with all the nations before him here on earth. And he says he'll separate them as one separates the sheep from the goats. And some of them are going on into the millennial kingdom that's about to begin, and some of them are going straight to hell. Sorry, that's a fact. That's a, that's a judgment, too. It's called the judgment of the living nations. After that millennial kingdom, there's a final judgment. We call it the great white throne judgment. By the, right at that moment when that starts, the whole earth and our sky and everything passes away in flaming fire. If you look ahead here in, first, in 2 Thessalonians 1, it talks about judgment coming in flaming fire. Well, that's where the flaming fire comes in. The whole heaven and earth disappears in a ball of supernatural fire. And all of the dead of all ages, all the un unrighteous dead of all ages are standing before God. Actually, here's where the irony comes in. The Jesus that they've rejected all these years, he's the judge sitting on the great white throne. How do I know? Well, because in John chapter 5, verse 22, right before that promise about having eternal life now, not wait till you die to find out, it says that, the Father judges no man. He has committed all judgment unto the Son that all men may honor the Son even as they honor the Father. Verse 23 says, He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father who sent him. Jesus is the judge. He's also the Savior. And you got your choice which way you're going to face him. See, each of us have chosen that I want Jesus' blood to pay for my sins because I can't stop it on my own. I can't. I'm a sinner. 
And apart from his grace, I got nothing to offer. He's my only hope. I would like to point out that not a single believer will be harmed by that final judgment. You're already in Christ. You'll be completely un unharmed. <clears throat> and how do we know? Well, again, Jesus said so. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my words and believeth on him who sent me has everlasting life, that's present tense, shall not come into condemnation. You're never going to be judged by God, including at the great white throne. But you've crossed over from death into life. That's permanent. You can't go back. <clears throat> Romans chapter 8 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to say in the next verse, this is Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Verse 2 says, For the law of the Spirit in Christ... Uh, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. I'm free from the Mosaic law that condemned me. I'm free from the, the law of God's holiness that condemned me. The law of the spirit of life in Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. <clears throat> so if I have to ask the question now, are we worthy? If I have to answer it based on my ability or my actions or my you know predilections for behavior i don't say absolutely not no no i'm not but if i can reply concerning the righteousness without the law that god talks about in romans chapter 3 verse 21 that's based entirely on jesus's righteousness then i can freely say that we've been judged worthy solely on the basis of jesus's shed blood his completed work at the cross that yes, I have been declared worthy by God. <clears throat> As we saw earlier, humans can only see that worthiness by actions. As, they, as those people saw how mom had endured that dreadful disease and saw the glory in her life, they, they glorified God. They said, I want my funeral to be just like that. It was a time of rejoicing. You know, rather than everybody standing around her casket crying. We picked that casket up and we walked it out the center aisle, aisle singing soon and very soon we're going to see the king. Hallelujah. By the way, it was real hard getting it out that aisle. It was very narrow and I commented to the lady afterwards, she says, nobody ever did that before. Well, they changed it. They moved the pews out a little bit so it was possible to walk out that aisle carrying a, carrying a coffin. That's over here at Feet and Rose. <clears throat> so here's another question. Can grace be earned? I'd like you to turn to Romans chapter 11, verse 6, please. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one on the pew. <clears throat> Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Romans chapter 11, verse 6. <clears throat> Now, in the context, Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 are answering the general question, what about the Jews? Are they still God's chosen people? Has he forgotten his promises to Israel? No, he hasn't. But in the context, he's talking about the gift of God being by grace, not by works. And that includes salvation. That includes their position as his people. And verse 6, he says, if it is by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it's of works, 
then it's no more grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. What in the world are you saying? Well, the word grace means unearned favor, unmerited favor. You did not earn this. You cannot earn this. If you can't earn it, then it's no longer grace. <clears throat> grace specifically means unearned favor. If you think you can earn God's favor, favor either as a believer or as an unbeliever, then you're falling prey to the trap of the evil one because the entire book of Galatians was written to warn against this kind of legalism that says, well, see, I do all these things, and that's why God likes me. Really. You say he's impressed because what you eat and don't eat or what kind of clothes you wear or how you cut your hair or what bumper sticker you got on the back of your car. No, he's not. He's not. You see, if, any point, if at any point my salvation or my security depends on my feeble works instead of Christ alone, then ultimately it's entirely dependent on my works. As I guarantee, my works will always be the weak link. When we were building barges at Gunderson, we had the, the towing bridle was chains, the smaller of the types of towing bridles that we made. The, each link of the chain weighed 126 pounds. One chain link, 126 pounds. That was the smaller ones. Now, what if we had taken one of those links out and replaced it with lots and lots of binder twine? Sorry, it wouldn't even hold the weight of the chain, let alone pull the barge. Okay, what about his uh, bailing wire? Lots and lots of that. Nope. You see, that would be the weak, weak link. Regardless of how good my works are, regardless of how good your works are, that's the weak link. If Jesus' righteousness and his blood of the cross is not enough to save you, then no matter what you do, it will never be enough. Because my works are the weak link. <clears throat> Jesus' finished work his perfect work at the cross. That's my only hope. So here's the final question. Does our testimony demonstrate worthiness? That's what this question is really about. You see in Ephesians 4.1, he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called, that you behave in such a way that it's fitting, that it shows that, yeah, this guy belongs to Jesus. Look at how he lives. There's something real going on here. See, that's what looks like worthy to the people around us. They, they look at it and say, well, you know, you can believe it or not, but what he's got is real. I got no question about it. He's very consistent. Everything he does fits, and I got to respect that, even though I think what he believes is baloney. Okay, that's good then. You know, <clears throat> that means you're walking worthy. The calling itself is secure. Whether I'm walking in such a way as to demonstrate that calling, that's where the question is. Does my walk demonstrate my worthiness? We don't become a child of God, nor do we maintain that, that status by the way we live. You don't become a member of the, I don't know, the Marine Corps, I'll say, by acting like a Marine. You act like a Marine, hopefully, if you are a member of the, of the Marine Corps, because you're a member of the Marine Corps. You're honoring that relationship. You know, I didn't get married to Anne by acting like I was married to her. I got married to her, and now I act like I'm married to her. I have for the last 42 years because I honor that relationship. <clears throat> we don't become a child of God by acting like a child of God. We act like a child of God because we are children of God, and we became that way by trusting in Jesus as our Savior. 
we live for him out of gratitude and love, not fearing that if we don't live up to our calling, he's going to cast us out. You remember what Jesus' promise was? Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. It doesn't say he that does all these cool things for me. It says he that comes to me, hands down, empty. I'm coming to you as a, as a repentant sinner. I've got nothing to offer. He says he receives you that way, and he says I will in no wise cast him out. That's the promise. But our testimony to others will either affect, reflect that reality or fail to do so. And that is our choice, day by day, moment by moment. You see, the world and, and other believers can only see our faith by our works, according to James chapter 2, verse 18, when it says, A man may say unto you, Show me your faith without works. I'll show you my faith by my works. Humans can't see faith without works. Lot's life was the demonstration that he was not walking with God. And as I said earlier, if that's all the information I had, I would have guessed he was not a believer, but God said he was. It's just that his life was a total wreck because he never learned to walk with God. And we want a better experience than that of Lot. We want to walk with God in such a way that our lives shine as a testimony of his grace, not of our own character, our own works. Jesus alone is worthy. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, we ask for your mercy as we stand before you with empty hands knowing that jesus alone is is worthy of praise and adoration and glory and all we want to do is walk with you and to be obedient to you to glorify you while we're here on earth in jesus name amen